0: You're listening to the Slice of MIT podcast, a production of the MIT Alumni Association. MIT in and of itself doesn't do medicine. There's no MIT medical school. But it's this place where brilliant technologists, designers, um, developers, engineers are at. And the medical community wants to work with these brilliant people. And so... The reason we've had a lot of success is because MIT is kind of this Switzerland, this neutral ground and everyone wants to work with us.
1: Good ideas never exist in a vacuum. They come from life experiences, worldviews, curiosity, hard work, and collective brain power. And when put to practice, the best ideas address real issues and solve real problems. MIT has never had a shortage of big ideas. The MIT mindset lends itself to tackling unique questions, then digging deeper to find solutions that question the status quo. So how are MIT alumni putting this solve anything mentality into practice? And what are some big ideas and solutions that are making a tangible impact? In this Slice of MIT podcast, we'll hear from five MIT alumni who are asking questions and confronting problems that will shape the future. We'll hear how a hacking ethos is leading to breakthroughs in medicine, how embracing new technologies can shape the camera of the future, how rethinking microbes could change the way we treat disease, and how crowdsourcing is helping protect Earth from asteroids. These conversations took place at the 2015 South by Southwest Festival, the Emerging Technology Forum in Austin, Texas, that attracted more than 30,000 attendees and featured more than 100 MIT alumni presenters. In a few of these interviews, you'll hear some background noise, but that's just the nonstop, organized chaos that is South by Southwest. MIT doesn't have a medical school, so it might seem unusual that so many alumni and researchers are involved in healthcare and medicine. But those two fields face new issues every day, like research funding, cost-saving initiatives, and new methods for treatment. Lena Colucci and Priya Garge are part of a group working to solve these problems using MIT's oldest methodology, hacking. Colucci and Garge are co-directors of MIT Hacking Medicine, a student-run group that brings together innovators from different fields for health hackathons. Each weekend-long hackathon attracts about 400 physicians, researchers, and entrepreneurs with a shared interest in a specific issue like pediatrics or critical care, who use so-called design thinking to collaborate on new strategies. Hacking Medicine's first hackathon was held at MIT in October 2011. Since then, the numbers are staggering. Nearly 6,000 innovators have attended more than 40 events in 20 countries and have spawned more than a dozen startups. Priya explains the design thinking mentality.
2: But I would say that I think that our, the way that we approach design thinking is something that is standard within the design community, but it's something that healthcare just doesn't yes. see. Yeah. Uh, so we're, you know, people say, okay, there's all these problems that exist in healthcare and we want to change them. But a lot of the time their methodologies are a little bit um, maybe like off base. And so we want to bring this user-centric approach of, you know, you got to think about all the different stakeholders, um, you know, segment what their needs are, what their wants are. Uh, and that's something that's especially important within healthcare because there's so many conflicting incentives that and there's so many different players in the system. So we try to. Just During the
1: hackathons, strangers turn collaborators, share ideas in pitch sessions, then meet with other participants for advice. Priya and Lena, the voice you heard at the beginning of this podcast, say it's a different approach that some attendees might not be accustomed to, but are growing more open minded about.
2: Um, and what we've seen is, um, you know, recently in opening up to, uh, you know, wanting to change. I mean, all the major hospitals in the Boston area have innovation centers now. They want um, they want to incorporate our methods, and we partnered with all of them. Um, they want, uh, even though they recognize that there are a lot of structures in place that make change slow moving, uh, there are now these core people who recognize that uh, it's important and that it's got to happen soon. So we're excited to be part of that.
0: For good reason, right? A lot of the medical system up, up until this point has been... You know, regimented and they're told to do things in a certain way and they adhere to those protocols and that's for a good reason because people's lives are at stake. But at the same time, I think what we're realizing is that there's a lot broken about the healthcare system and Finding the clinicians who have that expertise of, of the healthcare system and are able to provide insights without being negative and just being and just constantly saying no, it can't be done that way, no, it can't be done that way, is hard to find. And we've been fortunate that we now have a community built up of people who are always coming to our events and are part of this community, and they are the right clinicians. And so having enough critical mass of those people in the room um, just gets everyone in that right mindset as well.
1: So. Think of health hackathons as the sum of thousands of big ideas, rooted in a mentality that approaches a real problem from an unseen perspective. Priya explains. Yeah, I think there's kind
2: of two core things about our methodology, and one is you know disrupting the silos, as Lena was saying, that are so prevalent in the healthcare industry, and then applying the MIT hacking uh, you know, culture and, and ethos to bring those people together and to create actual uh, disruptive innovations. Yeah. Right.
0: You know, we see a health hackathon as being the spark that gets unlikely players collaborating together and often
1: MIT hacking medicine shows how thinking differently can lead to new ideas in healthcare. So what happens when we apply this mentality to a specific medical topic like bacteria? us carry more than two pounds of microbes all over us. And no matter where we are, we're surrounded by our microbiome, the complex biological system of more than 100 trillion microorganisms on the human body, in airwaves, and in every environment. But only recently have scientists discovered how important and how useful microbes can be. Bernat Olay is co-founder of Vedanta Biosciences a Boston-based startup that researches interactions between the human microbiome and the immune system. He's finding that an antibacterial world might be counterproductive to a healthy immune system.
3: And, you know, modern habits have been to clean up everything and sterilize everything and make it like very, very clean. We're starting to find out now that this is not really a good idea, like the abuse of antimicrobials and chemicals to, to clean and sterilize everything. This is actually eliminating a lot of the microbial exposures that we have um, as humans, which we know are now really important to help develop key human functions. So uh...
1: research in the field of the microbiome is still in its early stages. NLA, who was named Innovator of the Year by MIT Technology Review, Spain, is part of a growing group of engineers focusing on this area. His research has shown that microbes may be able to train the part of the human immune system that is responsible for preventing autoimmune diseases.
3: So for example, the most common problem in our field right now, big data problem is, you take a fecal sample from a person which contains trillions and microbes, and you try to figure out what's in there and whether it's any different between a healthy person and a person that has a disease. When you find a difference, a delta, then you're like, okay, maybe there's some information in that delta, maybe it's noise. But if it's not noise, if it's signal, then they can be the starting point for, for a drug program. Because, for example, instead of there being a small molecule, like aspirin, uh, the pill contains live microbes, so you swallow it. Um, they colonize in your stomach and, and, and your gut and your colon, primarily your, 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 your intestine. And then um, they provide functions that are uh, important for immune, your immune system. So that's what we're, what we're working on.
1: Burnett, Lena, and Priya show us that a Big Ideas Mindset can lead to real world change. But it's not all serious. While these alums are rethinking healthcare, one alumnus is reimagining the camera of the future.
4: Uh Henri Cartier-Bresson was kind of, you know, wrote, wrote this book in, 19, in the early 50s called the deci- decisive moment and kind of coined that that phrase where you know there is something very special about like, you know, it's freezing the moment. You know, and I used a couple of classic images, you know, the the Robert Kappa shot where the 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 the, the soldier is is being shot and is kind of falling, you know, in the in the image the the police chief of Saigon is shooting, you know, the the his prisoner, you know, on the street, shooting, executing him right, in, you know, in front of the camera, and and then you know se- several other sort of decisive moments, and there there's sort of this school of thinking which is camera you know, pictures of this sort of frozen images, and I think I think that's very powerful, and I think it continues to exist, but like I always think, well, I'd like to hit the play button on that.
1: Hans Peter Bronmo is an entrepreneur whose work is focused on bringing new technologies to consumers. He spent nearly a decade at Nokia, including three years as head and intrapreneur of the Everyday Adventure division, where his team built smart connected devices, apps, and wearables that focused on imaging and location services. At South by Southwest, Hans Peter discussed how advances in smartphone technology are rapidly evolving imaging and visual storytelling. To some, these technologies, like Snapchat, Instagram, and Vine, may make the camera obsolete. But to others, if we embrace the integration of photo and video, and reevaluate the definition of a camera, we may be in the midst of a photographic renaissance. Are the
4: apps the cameras? Or well, some people I refer to, you know, they'll, they'll show me the folder of their apps, and they'll say, hey, check out my cameras. And they'll right. refer to their apps on their cell phone oh, wow. as a camera. All right, and so that's becoming a whole thing. Is it all computational that way, right? Or is is even the notion of a camera kind of dead? And I think that's where it gets kind of interesting, right? The the artificial boundary between video and photo is one is a technology boundary. It's not, in my view, kind of a um, it, it it's not a medium boundary. And so so I think that's one of my pet peeves. I think that boundary is going to get erased. And every every still image will have a play button, and every. Every video you watch will have an ability to say, stop, scrub back, that's the beautiful picture I want or I want to use as a representation for what I'm looking at. Right.
1: For the first time in the history of our society, we have the ability to document nearly everything. New cars have driving cameras, buildings have security cameras, drones and satellites can capture images above us, and everyday life is documented through social media. So, in an era where nearly anything can be a camera, where does the artistry begin? To Hans Peter, it's less about the lens and more about the person behind it. And it's that it's not about the camera.
4: Okay. So the, the camera reimagined is not about the camera. The camera reimagined is about the form. And so while the tools are important, they're only important in service to the form. So the story, if you like, and expressing yourself or sort of or creating new forms, that's what this is all about. Yeah. And the camera becomes the tool for doing that. And so uh, what, I, what I love about um, sort of thinking about the camera is so that you're really thinking about storytelling, you're thinking about ex- expression, you're thinking about art, you're thinking about communication, uh, self-expression, self-representation. So all these things that, that, you know, the reason we shoot, the reason we capture um, security, of course, are, is, you know, is, is the reason we then make the tools to support it.
1: Jen Gustetic is the Assistant Director for Open Innovation in the White House's Office of Science and Technology Policy and a program executive at NASA. Part of Jen's role is to help infuse the U.S. government with new ideas. One approach they've employed is NASA Solve, an element of President Obama's strategy for American innovation that invites anyone, not just big companies and organizations, to help NASA solve pressing real-world issues. The rewards are twofold collaboration with the world's largest space agency, and scholarships and cash prizes for the best solution.
5: That There are a number of different ways, depending on your skill set, yeah. to so actually contribute about? to meaningful problem solving for NASA. And NASA Solve is a one-stop shop that allows people to find opportunities that are currently available for them to either compete for uh, money, if it's a prize competition, or to participate in citizen science activities to help expand um, and accelerate scientific knowledge so that anyone really can find a way to find a role with and see themselves in the work that NASA does.
1: Perhaps the most well-known example is a 2013 challenge issued by NASA that focused on finding all asteroid threats to human populations. The goal, use public engagement, open innovation, and citizen science to learn more about the asteroids in Earth's orbit, and the dangers they may pose.
5: So the Asteroid Grand Challenge was announced in June of 2013, and the Asteroid Grand Challenge is to find all asteroid threats to human populations and know what to do about them. Right. Kind of the definition of grand. Mm. <laughs> it's something that's of global importance, literally, because of protecting our planet. Um, but also, um, asteroids are really interesting potential future destinations and sources for materials um, off-planet. And so, After
1: 10 months of public input, Nearly 1,200 people submitted more than 700 ideas and solutions. NASA distributed more than $50,000 in prize money, and the challenge helped the space agency increase their capability to identify asteroids by 15%, a huge increase, and create a new application that allows scientists to use software to recognize more asteroids from existing surveys and telescopes. Jen says that a major driving force behind finding solutions is to first redefine the problem. Don't focus just on the end goal. Think about the incentives of the people you're trying to engage and determine the scope of the issue. Then reimagine how to solve the problem.
5: Problem definition is one of the most critical parts of any prize activity. You literally get what you ask for. So you really have to understand what you're asking for and what you're trying to drive to in order to have an effective prize competition. Problem definition is key, and it's actually not a skill that is taught nor um, really widespread how is it that you think about what the scope of the problem should be and not necessarily just trying to solve the problem and so a lot of what my job is not just uh, for NASA before I came to the White House but now at NASA now at the White House for the whole federal government is to help think about how we change the frame from uh federal employees being problem solvers in all cases, to being problem definers so that we can unleash solutions and creativity from other fields that might actually help us to get to better solutions for those problems.
1: So what do you think is the key to a big ideas mindset? And how do we turn big ideas into real action? Tweet your thoughts on this episode to at MIT alumni, that's at MIT underscore alumni. And if you want to hear more surprising, insightful, and quirky stories about MIT, subscribe to the Slice of MIT podcast on iTunes. Please rate the podcast and leave a review. Tell us what you liked and didn't like about this episode. And let us know what type of stories you'd enjoy hearing in the future. Special thank you to all of the MIT alumni who took part in the 2015 South by Southwest Interactive especially Hans-Peter Braunmo, Lena Colucci, Priya Garge, Jango and Bernat Ole. Subscribe on iTunes to automatically receive next month's episode of the Slice of MIT podcast. And for more stories about MIT at South by Southwest, visit the Slice of MIT blog at slice.mit.edu and search SXSW15. Want to learn more about the mindset behind big ideas? This podcast was produced to coincide with Hub Week, the first ever week-long celebration of the arts, science, and innovative culture of Boston, co-sponsored by MIT in locations throughout Boston and Cambridge. MIT's contribution to Hub Week is Solve, the launch of an ongoing program on the MIT campus that brings together global groups of creative thinkers, doers, and influencers who explore, model, and test new solutions to the world's most pressing problems. For more information on Hub Week, which takes place October 3rd through 10th, 2015, visit www.hubweek.org. And for more information on Solve, which takes place at MIT October 5th through 8th, visit solve.mit.edu.